Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 as we hear God's message for us today. I think at some point in everybody's life, you have probably expressed the need for some peace. There's some point in your life where you said, I just need some peace, right? Grandparents, after you've had a week with the grandchildren... Maybe some of you young adults who have already begun the summer and already, already you're praying for school to start back so you can have some peace. All of us at some point, well, we need some peace. Some individuals have suggested that peace might be the most needed and desired attitude and contentment of our hearts and lives, that people long for it, that they desire peace in their lives and not just the inner emotion of peace but rather that state of being that state of contentment that can be given in Romans chapter 5 Paul speaks about the peace that we have through Christ and I want to show you that this morning I want you to hear the need for the peace that that he expresses here I want us to see today why we needed that peace and how that peace has been appropriated to our lives, how we have found that peace, and what it now means. What are the implications of that peace for us as believers? Listen to what Paul would say as he is writing to that Roman church, as he expresses his heart. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. By the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For when we were still without strength. In due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Notice Paul begins this part of his letter by saying, therefore. Now I was taught in seminary, if you saw that word, therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? You need to understand what has come before. And in the last few weeks, we've, well, we've looked at some of those chapters, some of the writings that that he had given us earlier in this letter. And in those writings, in those previous chapters, Paul had spoken about our desperate need for a Savior. He had, he had painted the vivid and dark picture of what it's like to have a godless society. He had not only brought indictment to the Gentiles, but he had also brought indictment to the Jewish people. That in both cases, they had fallen short of the glory of God. That was his basic truth that he had expressed. 
And yet he had said that it was through Christ and through faith in him that we could come to salvation. So here Paul again says, therefore, based on what I've told you, based upon what I've shared with you, we have peace. Now we're going to flesh out that word peace this morning, but it means more than an inner emotional being. It's speaking about our contentment. It speaks to our relationship. It speaks to our standing with God. You see, what Paul tells us is that all of us stood against God. Now let that soak in for a moment. That all of us, at some point in our lives, we have stood against God. Now I know many of you in here are believers. You've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And yet, even for some of us who are believers, it would seem strange to even imply that we were enemies of God at some point or that we were hostile toward God. It would be strange for us. I mean, I'll be honest. I was saved at the age of 12 or so. I was at Birmingham Ridge Baptist Church. Some of you have heard me give my testimony. I saw a baptism one Sunday night. God spoke to me through that visible representation of the gospel, of, of seeing somebody go under the water and come all the way back up, all of a sudden it just clicked in my mind. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit came. You, some of you have been in those moments, right? Where, I mean, I just saw the gospel portrayed for me, that Christ died, that he rose again, and that it occurred for me and for my salvation. And the conviction came in my life. Now, I was, So I was around 12 years old. For me to go back and think at, let's say, the age of 10, I was an enemy of God, well, that seems so strange. It seems so misplaced. And even for folks later on who are saved, maybe when they're 30 or 35, most of them would never regard themselves as standing against God prior to their conversion. And yet, that is what Paul says he says that we, before our conversion to Christ, that we are actually standing against him. Notice the language he uses later on in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice, he says that we were enemies. That we were hostile toward the God of heaven. And we'd express that through our sin. In other words, every time we sin, every time that we chose that which was wrong, it was an active rebellion against heaven itself. And that we were enemies. We were hostile toward God. Paul will repeat this to the Ephesians. He'll speak to the Colossians about it. And he'll use that same type of terminology. That somehow we were enemies of Christ. I heard it put this way one time. I had a young man who had come and he expressed that he wanted to be saved. He was, a, he was probably 30 or so. He had been in the church most of his life. Probably had even been baptized at some point. But he came and he said he realized at that point that he was lost. And that he wanted to follow Christ truly and experience true conversion in his life. And this is what he said. He said, it's not that I feel like I've been against God. It's that I've never been for him. Hmm. 
I'd never heard it expressed quite like that before. And yet, what does the Scripture teach us? The Scripture teaches us that if you're not for Him, you are against Him. That moment stuck in my mind. And it reminded me that all of us at some point, every one of us, stood against God. Why? Because the Scripture teaches us, as we talked about last week, all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. So all of us in this place, all of us in this place, at some point in our lives, we stood against God. We could be tagged with that title, enemy of God. Why? Partly because of our heritage. And certainly because of our choice. Listen to what Paul will speak to these Romans about beginning in verse 12 all the way through 21. I want you to hang with me this morning. This is kind of a tough passage to read through, but read with me if you will and listen to what Paul says about our disposition toward God, especially as we find it rooted in the heritage of Adam itself, himself. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I know, again, very tough passage even to read through and begin to comprehend. But it gives what I, I call the one-man theology. The one-man theology. That is, that all of us have stood against God partly because of the one man and what the heritage we have through him. That one man being Adam. Remember Adam? Adam, the first human being, representative of all humanity, the captain of humanity, if you might call him, placed in the garden, placed in this state of innocence. He can choose what is right. He can choose what is wrong. And what does he do? Well, he falls short of the glory. He, he misses the mark. He misses God's intention. He sins. And because of that, all of us, according to what Paul says, all of us somehow inherit this sin nature of Adam. And we are bent toward sin. Now, all of us inherit certain traits 
from our family members, right? From those who have gone on before us. Think about it for a moment. All of us inherit some type of characteristic, trait, personality, those kinds of things. If you were to go to North Mississippi, for example, and you were to walk around and you could find somebody with a nose like mine, you probably could identify them as a Bridges. This is not the only nose out there. I know some of you looked at my nose and said, I hope and pray that's the only one that's ever been created here on this earth. No. You go and you will find some of my family members and you will find this distinctive nose. I inherited it. Now, my parents gave me some great things. I'm not sure the nose was one of them. But I, nonetheless, inherited it from them. Other kinds of traits. Some of you, you inherited maybe looks or, again, personalities or even some gifts, whatever it is, from different ones in your life. Well, what the Scripture says is that our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who sinned, he left us a legacy of falling short of the glory. That in a way, he stood against God. When he heard the temptation, when he realized that he might could become God or like God, he embraced that path. And he fell short. And because of that, all of us have a sin nature. We are bent toward sin. Now, some of you probably think, well, that's just wrong. Why are we paying for what Adam did? Well, friends, we are not paying just for what Adam did. We're paying also for what we have done. Not only have we inherited that nature, but we ourselves have sinned. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 12, but he had said, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. And then in the end, like as a parenthetical little statement, he said, Because all sinned. As though we had missed that earlier in the letter, and as though we were tempted to blame Adam with everything, he says, don't forget all, the exhaustive word all, have sinned. So all of us have sinned. Sin means missing the mark. Sometimes the scripture will use the word transgression. The word transgression typically means an open rebellion against God. So in other words, we have chosen to rebel against him. Thus we are enemies. Now why would we do that? Partly because we don't want to give up. Partly because we don't want to give up control. I was reading an interview of a pastor as he debated this known atheist. And as they were working through this interview and they were talking about the existence of God, the pastor looked at him and said, basically, he said, your hang-up is that if there is a God, you would have to change some things in your life. To which the atheist did agree. Yes, if there was a God, I would have to change some things in my life. The pastor responded... And said, so, your issue is not just with the existence of God. The issue is your willingness to change and give up. 
And that is part of our issue. That so many of us want to go on in our sin because we can make our own choices. I mean, if there is a God out there, that means, well, that means he has a say over our lives. If there is a God out there, that means that he has the authority to command us. And remember what the earliest confession of faith was for the believers? Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Oftentimes when I'm talking to children in particular and I'm talking to them about what the gospel means, the idea that Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is boss. That's what it means. That he directs us. He guides us. He is over us. So what we so often do is embrace sin because we do not want to recognize a God above or at least his authority over our lives. But again, I'll take you back to this. If you are not for him, you are against him. And here Paul says, we stood against God. Now, I use the past tense here. Because Paul is speaking to believers, correct? He is speaking to believers. So believers stood against God, but this is what happened. He stood for us, Jesus Christ. We stood against him, and yet in the midst of all that, he stood for us. Notice again verse 6. Oh, you... You've got to love these verses that follow. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at this. Paul says, while we were standing against him, we were in open rebellion against heaven itself, God the Father sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for us. And that is the true demonstration of love. And that is the ongoing demonstration. In verse 8, but God demonstrates present tense. Means he goes on and on and on displaying his love. Through what? Through the one act of Christ's sacrifice for us. Because if you look in verse 8, Christ died for us. Past tense, decisive action, distinct action. He says, we go on seeing the love of Christ in our life because we know at one point in history, in that one moment, Christ died for us and was the sacrifice. That's how we get peace with God. Is that Christ bridged the chasm between man and God. A few years ago, there was this preacher that would do different types of evangelistic efforts. You probably never heard of him, Billy Graham, but you probably have never heard of him, but he would certainly give clear explanation of the gospel itself. He would invite people to come and receive Christ. But one of the things I remember about the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is that they would give out these tracts. Some of you remember those. Steps to peace 
with God or simply peace with God. And we talk about how you could come to peace with God. Some of you remember those? Some of you? Where are you? I'm talking, yeah, there you are out there. You're somewhere. I'm bringing you back in. Yes. Some of you remember those little tracks. And they were effective for me to at least visualize, to think about that chasm and how God had brought this reconciliation through Christ. You remember it went something like that. Here's God on this side. Here we are as humanity on the other. This great chasm called sin that separates us. I mean, basically here we are. We have rebelled. We're on one side and God is on the other side. And Christ Jesus came to bridge that chasm. To bring the two together. This is the one man theology again. Because where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, the new captain of humanity, Jesus, he brought the two together. He bridged the gap. He reconciled us through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. We talked about the sacrifice last week. But it was the sufficient one to pay for our sins. Remember, he was the propitiation to turn away wrath and to atone for our sins. But in that action, he brought us together. Notice the terminology that Paul uses. He says, we were reconciled. So here we were enemies, and yet we were reconciled. He says, and having been reconciled, we shall be saved. Reconciliation. I think that is at the heart of this idea of peace, specifically peace with God. That we have been reconciled with Him. That's peace. Now, sometimes when we talk about peace, we talk about a truce, right? We're just going to have some peace. But it really means we're just having a truce. That means... Everybody's just going to stop firing for a few moments, right? I read somewhere (laughs) a description of peace. It says it is that one glorious moment in history when everybody just stands around reloading. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Just that one glorious moment when they're, but they're still, they still are thinking about, they're still thinking about strife. You know, you've had a truce before without peace. Yeah? Maybe, maybe with a family member. Maybe with a neighbor. It, it was just one of those things, hey, you go do your thing, I'll go do mine. We're not fighting about it. But we're, basically there is no reconciliation. There's nothing that's going to be resolved. It's just kind of like, hey, we're declaring a, truth, a truce. And we're not firing at each other right now. And that, for some people, well, for some people, that's peace. That's not the biblical description of peace. But for some, that's peace. We've just declared a truce. And I've probably been a part of those moments, and you've been a part of those moments. But may I say to you that when you look at this peace, the peace of God, and how it has been affected through Christ Jesus... That's not just a truce. 
God, God didn't just say, hey, you know what? We're, we're, we're just going to stop. Fire. If, if you'll just stop rebelling on your end, I'll just stop. It, it, it's just a truce. God didn't do that. You know what he did? He brought genuine peace through reconciliation. So while we were far away from him, hostile enemies of him, he stood for us so that he could take us and bring us in. And he removes, he removes the attitude of hostility itself. How awesome is that? I mean, can you think for a moment of that person that you know that you'd like to reconcile with? And I'm talking about truly reconcile. Think about an individual. Maybe, maybe you don't have anybody, okay? You may not have anybody, and that's awesome. But for probably 90% of us in here, we have some people we could probably reconcile. Think if you could go to that person. And remember, reconciliation takes basically two individuals, at least humanly speaking. You go to that individual and you want to reconcile. And that somehow God removes the hostility that they have toward you and the hostility you have toward them. Something only God can do within us as we reconcile. Would that not be awesome? And in this case, we have no charge that we can bring against God. God has been holy. God has been righteous. God has been good the whole time. We are the ones that have been hostile against him and his will. And yet, through Christ Jesus, his dying for us, what he's done is brought us in. He has brought us in. And there has been a removal of hostility. Now there has been the placement of a relationship. A relationship before the God of heaven. So while we stood against him, he actually stood for us in the cross, in the sacrifice. And now, and now we can stand in him. Not against him, but in him. In peace, And I think that's really what these first few verses of chapter 5 indicate. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been affected through him. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. He says that we have access. Some of your translations say an introduction. An introduction or access. That word there was used to describe the ability to walk into the king's court and be received with favor. So get this. Before I was out there fighting the king and his forces, the king did something that I could not do by providing his son as a sacrifice to end the hostility. And then the king received me into his court with favor. That was so totally against the Jewish mind that you would be able to walk right into the court of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that you would be able to do it only through faith. Only through your absolute trust. So now we walk into the King's court 
and we're received. I've gone from being an enemy. I've gone from being an enemy to being his own child received into the court. And because of that, listen, because of that, we have peace. That contentment, that being of knowing that we have been received by the God of the universe. That is the reason Paul writes and he says, we have peace. We have been received. Get this, we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Rejoice in the hope. Now, biblical hope is not like our hope. When we talk about hope, we're usually talking about wishful thinking, right? About Thursday, I hoped Ole Miss would make it to the College World Series. Wishful thinking. I forgot what Omaha stands for. Ole Miss at home again. I should have remembered what it stands for. Wishful thinking. I'm still rooting for a few, kind of like Louisiana Tech, which I know a few of our folks are up at now. I'm kind of rooting for them, but still, the biblical hope is not wishful thinking. If we translate it that way, if we somehow think of it that way, we have totally lost it. The biblical hope is assurance and confidence. When we talk about hope in the Scripture, it means we know it's going to come true. The hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but also glory and tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. In other words, now that I have the peace of God, that I know I stand righteous before Him because of what Christ Jesus did for me, I can face anything and everything else that comes at me. Did you get that? He said that even when I stand in tribulations, when the difficulties come in my life, whether it's physical difficulty, whether it's a spiritual challenge, whatever it is, when it comes to my life, I can stand and stand in permanence because I have peace with God. It makes all the difference in the world. I'm not saying to you it's not difficult to go through those moments of tribulation. It is. I'm not saying to you that it can't, that it's not hard to experience the emotion and all the other things that go with it. But what's wonderful is when you are able to peel back those emotions and you find the center of who you are in your heart, you know that you still have peace because of your relationship with God. It makes all the difference. That you can stand in such a way, stand with such hope, knowing that that tribulation, well, that it would grow you, lead to perseverance, and that eventually God will fulfill His ultimate plan of salvation for us. Now, hope does not disappoint, He says. Our confidence and our assurance will not disappoint us. Because we can count on Him, the Holy Spirit that lives within us. In verse 9 and in verse 10, He says, We shall be saved from wrath through Him. 
We shall be saved by his life. Those phrases used. Now most of the time, when I talk about my spiritual journey, I say proudly that I know that I've been saved. I can say that with assurance because I've had faith and trust in him. So often I can say it, I was saved. Almost in a past tense type of manner. But the great Baptist statesman, Herschel Hobbes. Dr. Hobbes said that for us as believers, we need to be reminded that salvation is not just a past tense verb. Now, don't get me wrong. He believes only one time you come to faith and you trust and your eternity is secure. But what Dr. Hobbes also pointed out is that it is right to say that God is saving us because the process is still going on in our lives and that God will save us ultimately. Isn't that what Paul just said using future tense? He knew that he was saved. He knew he had the peace of God right now. But one of the reasons he had such peace is because he knew that in the future, God would save him ultimately. All of us in this place ought to have that type of confidence. That God will fulfill his work of salvation in our lives right now. But that work of salvation will ultimately be demonstrated as we experience eternity with him. We will be saved. We will be saved from this world, this culture, all that stands against him. We will be saved because he stood for us and we can stand with him, in him, and who he is. That's peace. That's the peace of God. And I pray that you've experienced it in your life. If you have, give him glory, give him honor, praise him daily for the peace that passes all understanding. If you haven't, my friends, it's so easy. Oh, it wasn't cheap. It cost the father his son and the son his life. But he paid the price so that if you would come and trust him and believe in him and give your all to him, you can have that peace as well. It's not that I'm against him. It's that I've never been for him. My friends, today, if that's your statement, run to him and embrace him and stand with him through the peace that he gives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this day. We thank you for this moment to reflect upon the peace that you have given to us as believers. Thank you for fleshing it out in Paul's words. And Lord, thank you for doing something we could not do for ourselves in bringing this reconciliation, bringing this peace to us. Now, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here that you would allow us to just glory in you for a moment, what you've done, that we'll rejoice in that peace. God, for those who have not received you as their Lord and Savior, who have not received this peace, Lord, I pray that you would convict them through what only your Holy Spirit can do in their lives. 
And the Lord, they would reach out. They'd call out. And they'd trust you today. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.